This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. When you open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you find that very little has changed in 2,000 years because part of the reason Paul wrote 1 Corinthians was to respond to a letter that had been written to him concerning questions that these Corinthians had, especially questions concerning uh, marriage, concerning divorce, uh, concerning sexual matters. And true to form, uh, Paul wants to respond as a faithful apostle to each one of these things. So what you're going to see as we unfold the text before us is 16 verses in which he is trying to draw biblical parameters around these issues that have been raised by the Corinthians. You know, today we are a boundaryless culture oftentimes. We don't know what we believe about anything, and so discussions just become a sharing of mindless opinions, and no one ever reaches any conclusions. And so what Paul is trying to do in this letter as they've raised these issues out of this pagan culture is at least, he won't answer everything specifically, but he will at least begin to draw some biblical parameters around the issues so that those issues can be discussed intelligently and spiritually before God and before one another. So I'm going to move through this text listing the five areas of concern that these Corinthians had and raised to Paul in the previous letter. First, he draws biblical boundaries for those who are what I call sexually confused. I want you to look at verse 1. He says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote... So they've already written him. It is not good for a man to touch a woman. Now that's a very simple statement, but it's also a statement that suffered a lot of abuse over the years. In fact, as I told the congregation earlier, uh, one of these days I'd like to preach a message that deals with the misuse of certain statements of Scripture that have become so ingrained in our culture, they're almost catchwords for action But in in reality, they've been lifted from the real context of Scripture. If you go to the university, you'll find on many university campuses the phrase, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And they'll refer that to education. But the reality is, is that's a statement clearly directed to the person of Jesus Christ. Or you'll have statements that you'll find where people say, judge not, that Dan dealt with just a few weeks ago from Matthew 7-1, when the reality is, is that passage is all about judging not, not judging. Or Romans 13, 8, where it says, Oh, no man anything, and people have created a whole theology of no financial debt. When that passage doesn't speak about that at all, it speaks instead about notting, not letting your obligations go past due. So there are all kinds of things that at times we've lifted out of the context of a scripture that needs a better setting to understand what they rightfully say. And this verse is one of those. Because what does it say? It's not good, okay, for a man to touch a woman. And that verse has been used, especially in dating seminars and marriage seminars, to set this incredibly high standard for courtship. And in particular, that in that courtship period, that there should be no touching, period. No kissing, no putting your arm around her, no even holding hands, nothing. Well, 
oftentimes it's even presented as a higher level of spiritual life too. And anyone who falls short of that might find themselves more in a compromised position than one of high spirituality. Now I want you to know I am very, very much in support of high standards when dating. In fact, I think some of my standards would be a lot higher than most people would feel comfortable with. But I would not base the standards that I would hold upon 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. And the reason I wouldn't is because this verse is not about general physical contact. Uh, if you remember Dan's message last week, leading up to this verse is all about immorality, being involved in a sexual, illicit sexual union. What you'll look at verse 2 of chapter 7, you'll notice he's going to deal about immorality. The reality is, is this statement in verse 1 is not about general physical context. It's about sexual involvement with one another. It's comparable to the word lay that we would use today because touch in the first century was a first century slang term for getting involved with one another. If we used lay instead of touch, it would read like this. It would be, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it's not good for a man to lay with a woman. Now, if I said that today, you'd know exactly what I meant, wouldn't you? You'd know I wasn't talking about laying on the couch snuggling. You'd know I was talking about illicit sexual involvement outside of the bonds of marriage. Well, I want you to know that's exactly what the word touch is referring to. In fact, if you have a New International Version of the Bible, it'll have an asterisk around the word touch, and at the footnote at the bottom, it will actually retranslate this verse to read this way. It is not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. And I say that because that is exactly what Paul is addressing here. And I want to clear up that confusion even here at the beginning. And you might even write in your Bibles under touch, just put i.e. sexual relations. That's the proper interpretation. Now, our confusion might be over the interpretation. That was not the Corinthians' confusion at all. They were, over, they were confused about the place of sex in a believer's life. In fact, a controversy had arose in Corinth by some who were suggesting that all sex was evil. And that even within the marriage bond, couples needed to be celibate. Now, that sounds almost silly to us, doesn't it? But in a culture as licentious and sexual indulgent as Corinth was, with its comings and goings, that people had so made sex synonymous with a ruinous life that there was an overreaction in this new church trying to be holy. Now, if you were to walk the streets of Corinth, you would see in front of you this incredible mountain that dwarfed the city. It'd be like if we moved this church community out to Pinnacle Mountain and at the base of Pinnacle Mountain we had our city and standing above us all the time is Pinnacle Mountain. It kind of shadows over the city. That's what it feels like to be in Corinth. I've been there. And on top of that mountain was a temple and that temple was a cultic temple given to the worship of Aphrodite and love and illicit sex was part and parcel of the worship services. In fact, all during the day, if you were in Corinth, up and down the street, temple prostitutes would walk up and down the streets, and on their sandals, underneath their sandals, they would have words so that when you stepped in the sand, it would leave the word, follow me. Follow me. So here's this temple prostitute walking down the street, follow me, and she's walking up to the Aquil Corinth to lead you in some real, lively worship. 
Now, the Corinthians, having come to Christ in a much different lifestyle of holiness, they reacted to that. And, and in wanting to draw back, as so often we do, we draw back into another extreme position. That's what they had done. No sex, period. And that was their concern. And so Paul was starting to address that here in 1 Corinthians 7. And it'll be behind a lot of the statements all the way through this passage. Because there were people who had now become Christians were feeling guilty for feeling sexual. There were others who were in marriage where the wife didn't want to have sex anymore to be spiritual. The husband didn't know what to do with that. And so Paul writes this response to give balance to that controversy, but there are also principles that are in this text that apply directly to our situation here in the 20th century. So follow along with me. Let me move through these first seven verses on sexual confusion. He first of all says, hey, I agree with those of you who are Pro, in the pro-abstinence position outside of the bonds of marriage, it is good for a man and woman who are dating or who are in courtship not to be involved sexually. That is good, and I affirm you in that. But I don't agree with that position within marriage. Look at verse 2. He says, because it creates a climate for temptation and immorality. So let each man have his own wife, that is sexually speaking, and let each wife or each woman have her own husband. And what he's saying here you know, to abstain from sex within marriage, that's not going to be healthy at all. In fact, it's going to create a climate of unhealth to resist your husband or your wife and to pretend that that's some kind of higher spirituality is actually to create for them an environment of temptation. And if it goes on long enough, they'll seek an outlet somewhere else and that'll create immorality in the relationship. And I say that because it's important that you understand the value of the sexual union within marriage. And that's what he begins to address in verses 3 through 5. He says, therefore let the husband fulfill his duty. That's an interesting way of talking about the sexual relationship, isn't it? As a duty. Let him fulfill that as a duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to the husband. Because the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise... The husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. So stop, here's the key line, stop depriving one another. See, Paul is trying to clear up some of the confusion and the conflict that might result from one mate resisting the other. And he's saying, that's not a healthy environment at all. Celibacy in, within marriage is not some high spiritual attainment. It's foolishness. In fact, when it comes to marriage, one of the chief responsibilities, listen, one of the chief responsibilities you have is to be a satisfying sexual partner. That's one of your chief responsibilities. Sex is not just a gift to be received. It is a duty that calls for responsibility on your part. And when we try to discount that in some way, we find ourselves in a, going upstream against the very promises and principles of God that's going to create white water for us. God sees this as a wonderful gift He's given, but it comes with responsibility and duty towards one another in the relationship. Now, there may be some special occasions where you abstain. He lists one in here in their desire for holiness. Some were, you know, breaking off the, that union for a time of prayer and fasting and those kind of things. And he says you can do that if you'd like. 
But he says you can only do it when two things are involved. One, where you both agree to it. Not where one agrees to it and the other doesn't it. By mutual agreement. And then also when you have a time limit set in regards to it. Because to go on and on and on is to create a climate of unhealth. All of that he says in order to clear up this sexual confusion. Now, now with that, then Paul adds this one other addendum in verses 6 and 7. Notice he says, I want to say something else by way of concession, not of command, and it's this. Verse 7, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. And what does that mean? Well, Paul's single. He says, I wish everybody were single. To me, that's not an inferior position. I love being single. It helps me to be free of distractions. It helps me to be focused and give undivided attention to my ministry. And I'm faithful to that. I wish everybody was like that. But he says, I want you to notice, I don't go around putting what I love on everybody else. Because what I've recognized is that what I am is a gift from God. It's not something that anybody forced me into. It's something that I want to do. And likewise, people have other kinds of gifts and it's not to be single. It's to be married, and that's a gift too. And singleness is not better than marriage, and marriage is not better than singleness. You know, the Jewish community thought to be single is to be a curse. But in the Greek community, to be single was some kind of ideal. And Paul says, neither one of them is more important or more valuable than the other. They're gifts from God. And if you have that gift, enjoy the gift He's given you. But don't go around and saying, I'm more spiritual, and you've got to be like me. Receive your gift and enjoy it. And he says, that's what you need to do. He says, let each man have his own gift from God. One in one manner, one in another. Those are biblical boundaries for those maybe in a sexual confusion. Now within that there are other questions, but at least that draws the discussion into some kind of order. He lists biblical boundaries of another sort starting in verse 8. It's biblical boundaries for believers who've lost a mate through death. In verse 8 he says, but I say to the unmarried and to widows. Now I want to stop right there and look at the word unmarried just for a moment because it's a word in Greek that's in the masculine plural. And I, I have to agree with most scholars that that word probably refers to widowers, men who have lost mates. The word widower in Greek in the first century had fallen in disuse. And so I think Paul uses the word unmarried to speak to widowers and then to widows. That's how the verse is unfolding. But I say to the widowers and to widows that it's good for them if they remain, and then he adds this phrase, even as I. That's interesting. Even as I. That's probably the closest hint in all the scriptures that Paul was a widower. That's why he was single. We know that Paul was a rabbi and rabbis were almost always married. Those who were in the upper level tier of the rabbinical uh, uh, organization were almost always married, and Paul was up in that hierarchy as well. So he was probably married at one time, but here he's identifying with those who've lost a mate. In fact, you could almost read verse 8 to say, it's good if they choose not to marry again, even as I've chosen. That's almost what you hear whispered in that text. Now why is that? Because so often, as Paul has already enumerated, it allows them a tremendous freedom of focus. And our church, just like many churches, are blessed in incredible ways by widows and widowers. 
the time they give. I mean, you come up at the office sometime and you find people who've lost a mate, but rather than just losing their way in that, they focused on the ministry that Christ has given them. And they do incredible things for this church in the new freedom of time that God has afforded them in that state. And so rather than being a curse, it becomes a cause for them in the lives of other people. Now I want you to know if you're in that place, you have blessed our church in many, many ways. But now he goes on to say, being a widow or widower doesn't mean you have to stay in that place if God's calling you to another place. And that's why he lists verse 9. He says, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry. Now the point he's saying here is not that they've somehow relegated themselves to some kind of second-class Christianity by choosing to marry. It's, it's just the opposite. It's what he's previously said. That's a gift. And you need to accept that gift and not feel obligated to remain single. It's better to marry than refuse the gift of another person if God so brings that person into your life. Because to refuse that is to put yourself in this constant tension and struggle that's not being gifted, that's being cursed. He said, so relax. Either way, enjoy the life that God has given you. Now Paul turns to the issue of marriage and divorce, and he wants to draw some biblical boundaries around that as well. And again, I want to emphasize that probably behind this was this controversy of being celibate uh, in marriage and that somehow being celibate in marriage was some high spiritual order. Look at verse 10. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. In other words, I'm just repeating what the Lord Jesus said in His earthly life already. And what is that? That the wife should not leave her husband. Now, the word leave there is a technical legal term for divorce. Jesus used it. In fact, in Matthew, it's quoted as divorce in the New American Standard. So we could read it this way. But to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not divorce her husband. But if she does divorce, let her remain unmarried as a believer or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. I want you to know, while verses 10 and 11 probably dress a specific application for the people of Corinth, it also does what Scripture does oftentimes throughout the Bible. It just simply calls us back to a permanent, powerful principle that the Bible upholds from cover to cover. And it also applies very specifically to where you and I are today with the divorce epidemic that has infected our culture, and our community. You know, every year goes by now in America where for every marriage that's taking place, someone is getting a divorce. 50% of the children in this country, regardless of color, 50% of the children in this country, before they reach the age of 18, will live in a single parent home for a period of time. I don't think we're aware of what all that means. I think we have gone in some ways into a collective denial as a country. But these statistics are huge. We've, we've, we've almost made divorce because it's so prevalent. We've almost made it a casual thing. Now, now, if we really sat down and looked each other eyeball to eyeball, 
Well, we could, we could work up the energy to make it feel more serious, but it's almost gotten casual among everyone. Despite what we really know about it, it's almost become like a right rather than a wrong. Rather than something that's grievous and harmful and painful. We're also breathtakingly ignorant of the long-term effects of divorce on people. In fact, we want to call it no-fault divorce in our country today. But you know those, and you can talk to anyone who's been through a divorce, you know what they'll call it? A never-finished divorce. Goes on and on and on. It becomes more complicated. The issues that spring out of it become more severe at different seasons of life with family and children and so on and so forth. And in the midst of that, you find the Lord's instruction. And let's not miss the Lord's instruction here that Paul reclaims in this moment dealing with this controversy. And what is that instruction? It's shouted in Malachi. It's shouted in Matthew and Mark and Luke. It's shouted here. Don't, don't divorce. Don't divorce. Don't do it. You know, if there were prophets here today on the streets of Little Rock, I think one of the things those prophets would do, even in the rain today, is they would be walking the streets of Little Rock just shouting, don't divorce. Please. Don't do that. Fight for your marriage. Seek help for your marriage. Talk to people. Enlist their support. Get counseling. Think about what the the difficulties are. Uh, find words of hope and encouragement if you can. But don't divorce. One of the books that we have in our library is called Reconcilable Differences. Healing for a Troubled Marriage. You know, oftentimes a person comes up and says, yeah, we're not doing well. I'm thinking about leaving him. And our words are, well, I'm really sorry. You know what they need to be? Don't do it. Let me, let me get you some material to think through that before you do that. You need to rethink that. Don't divorce. It needs to be one of the clarion calls of our day. I want you to know the number one problem in this church, as it is in almost any church, the one that consumes more time, demands more ministry, creates more conflict than any or all of the rest put together, is divorce and the fallout that comes from it. If we could eliminate that plague from our church, a good 50% of the pastor's time and ministry could be reclaimed, and yours as well, to do other things. Don't divorce. Please, think about it. Now, are there some cases where divorce is legitimate? Yes, there are. In the Scriptures, and we're not going to take our time to go through every one of those, but one of those is a Adultery between a believer, married to a believer. One that we'll talk about in just a moment is the, the desertion of an unbeliever from a believer. I've given a, 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 a whole booklet to that that you can find in our bookstore called Rights and Wrongs, A Study of Divorce and Remarriage in the Church. And if you want to look at that, you can after the service. If you want to know what all the parameters and specifics are, they're here for you. But here's the point. These things here... These are exceptions. The general rule, the one that needs to be shouted is, don't divorce. Think about it. Reconsider it. If you're going to fight, fight for the vows that you've made. 
That's what you need to fight for. And become a promise keeper. There's a fourth set of biblical boundaries here. There are boundaries for believers married to unbelievers. In verse 12 it says, But to the rest I say, not the Lord. In other words, the Lord never addressed this in His earthly life. But Paul's going to address it, now inspired by the Spirit of God. And he says that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not divorce her. Same word, divorce. Verse 13, and a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, let him not divorce him. Don't do that. Now, Scripture, I want you to know, is very clear as far as a person considering who to marry. Scripture is very clear that it lays over one primary characteristic. There are a lot of others that you need to consider, but in the scriptural lens, it's that they be a believer of like faith. In 2 Corinthians 6, it says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. And anyone who does that understands the hard rub of that after they get married. Uh, in our chapter, in 1 Corinthians 7, when you get to verse 39, it talks about a spouse who's lost someone through death, and it says that she or he is free to remarry, but then it adds this little phrase, yet only in the Lord. Believers should marry believers. Now, Paul is addressing something different here. And by the way, anyone who's married and tried to mix faith with unbelief, they know it's a hard mix. They know that. But there were some here in Corinth, and maybe you're one of these like these, who you entered the marriage bond as an unbeliever with an unbeliever, and somewhere along the line you became a believer and they're still an unbeliever. That happens. Or maybe you just married recklessly. You didn't have any teaching on that. Maybe you grew up in the church, but nobody really pressed that. They just let that go unstated. And so you've married a person of unbelief, but now in that marriage and now wanting to grow as a Christian, you find what a disjointed kind of arrangement that is, at least spiritually speaking. The question is, well, what do I do now? Well, some in Corinth, because of their high-minded kind of spirituality, they were suggesting if you're married to an unbeliever, let him go, let her go, just divorce. And so Paul needs to draw some boundaries around that problem. And his boundaries are this. He says, no, that would be a mistake. Don't let them go. Don't divorce them. In fact, honor your unbelieving mate and pursue the marriage with your unbelieving mate as long as your mate is committed to pursuing it with you. You don't need to get rid of them. And then he tells us why. He tells us that this relationship, though mixed with unbelief, is still extremely special in the eyes of God. God treats it as special. Look at verse 14. He says, For the unbelieving husband, now listen to this, the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his believing wife. Now that means this. The unbelieving husband is actually set apart, treated as special by God because there's belief in that household. And also, the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. And that even transcends to the children of that marriage. They're not considered unholy or unclean in a, as they would be in an unbelieving marriage, but they're treated as special because of the belief of the mate who's in the marriage. It says they're not unclean, but now they're holy. There's a specialness to that marriage, even with the unbelief. Remember the story of Abraham and uh, his relatives being in the city of Sodom? 
And uh, God said he was going to judge Sodom for its sin. And Abraham began to barter with God. And he said, now, God, if there are at least 50 righteous people there, would you spare Sodom? And God said, you know, I will. If you can find 50, I will. Well, he couldn't find 50. So he came back to God. He said, what about 45? God said, I'll do it then. How about 30? Yeah, 30. How about 20? Yeah, 20. How about 10? If I can find 10, would you spare the city? And God said, you know, I will. I'll spare the city for just 10, the whole city. Now, here's the point. If God would have spared a whole city as, as sinful as Sodom was, he would still treat it as special for just 10 righteous people. What about a marriage where 50% of it is righteous? Not only will he spare it, but he'll bless it. And he'll treat it as special in his eyes. And that's a cause for rejoicing by the way, if you find yourself in such an arrangement. Yours is not to escape. Yours is to call upon God to help you in it because it not only helps your mate, but it also brings a specialness to your children as well. Well, then Paul turns to the next question. Well, what if the unbeliever wants out though? What if they initiate divorce proceedings and, and want out of the marriage? Well, that brings us to the last biblical boundaries. Look at verse 15 because this is dealing with boundaries when a believer is deserted by an unbeliever. He says, verse 15, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, that is divorces, then let him divorce. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. In other words, if they want out, then let them go. If they want a divorce, then let them to divorce. Because at that point when they do, the marriage relationship in the eyes of God will be over. It won't be like two believers and the one who's left does not need to weary themselves or to wait in an unmarried state trying to somehow get them to come back. Let it go, he says. In this situation, God has called you to peace and you are free to remarry only in the Lord. Now there are some, and I even had some after the service say to me, you know, that has happened to me, but I still feel like I need to pursue them in some way, I feel guilty because I feel like I can still have a, an impact on them for Christ. And maybe I can help bring them to Christ. Well, that's exactly what he wants to address in the next verse because what Paul's going to argue here is that, you know, in that kind of situation, you need to leave them up to God. You don't need to feel guilty that somehow you've abandoned them in their unbelief and they're going to stay there and it's all on your shoulders whether they come to faith or not. Look at verse 16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? You don't. Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You don't. And the point here is that you need to entrust them to God, but you need to move on with your life feeling at peace that the marriage relationship has ended. Now those are biblical guidelines, boundaries to help frame the discussions that will impact you and me over and over again in our lifetime. It will be with our friends. It might be with our sons and daughters at some point, or relatives. It may be even in our own marriage. But the place to begin in these very difficult discussions is with these biblical boundaries that the Scriptures, Paul, so clearly sets forth. But to those, I want to add four final thoughts just to let you leave with, kind of application points that you might think about. The first is this. For you who are single here today, you who are single, keep 
your dating relationships pure. Pure. Especially, I want to challenge you single men, if you want an instructional guide to carry you all the way into marriage, the one that you need to have memorized, if there's a section of Scripture that you need to brand in your mind, it would be 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. Now, we're not going to look at it this morning. You can read it, but you need to more than read it. You need to see that as if God were standing here speaking those words to you, and they says, this is how I want you to conduct yourself. It is so important that young men hear from other men that the honorable way of real, authentic manhood is to lift high the standards of purity in a dating relationship. I love what Percival was told in the story of King Arthur when he left home. It was told to him at that moment, when a man fails to honor a lady, his own honor must be dead. A woman needs for a man to take the lead in honoring her in the relationship. Anything less than that is a retreat to boyhood, not to manhood. Keep your relationships pure. Secondly, for those of you who are considering divorce, please, don't be hasty. Talk with someone who's been through the experience. You know, we have a common cause group here on called... Uh, a common cause group that's committed to divorce prevention and recovery. Their whole job, everybody in the group's been divorced. They know divorce well. And one of the reasons they meet is to formulate ways that they can encourage couples or people who are struggling with marriage and help inform them about where all that is going and give them the full picture of what they can expect if they were to take their relationship lightly and leave it. And they want to warn them about it might grab hold of that group or send somebody you know to one of the people in that group if they're going through a struggle in their marriage relationship to think twice before they leap. Then for those of you who are married, I want to exhort you to meet the physical needs of your mate. Don't put them at risk by withholding your love. Don't put them in that situation. You know, it's funny that, that from time to time I've dealt with people, even in this last uh, couple of weeks, who, because of pressures and problems that they've had, one or the other has withdrawn the authority the other person really has for their body from them and put them in an isolated situation that's gone on weeks and months. To do that is cruel. It treats this wonderful area of sexuality as something that's not necessary when the Bible says it's very necessary. And you who treat it in any other way other than sacred and a priority, if you treat it as anything less than that, you're hurting the other person. You're tempting the other person. You're putting them in an environment of unhealth. And they need you. So treat that relationship as your responsibility. Receive that as your duty from God to work at that area and to make that area something that's exciting, not something that is a point of contention and something that could be a point of temptation. And then finally, I would say to all of us, in any relationship we're in, no matter how good it is or how difficult or fragile, we might find it the best place you can be in life is when you're entrusting yourself 
to God. And you're putting yourself within the biblical boundaries of His Word. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the place of safety. We have a great God. And you know, I've been privileged to see in all the relationships of 25 years of ministry that those who put themselves in that posture of within the safety of His Word, they experience great things. Some of them even experience miracles in their relationship that become a tremendous testimony of the might and power and graciousness of God for a lifetime. But it only comes when they follow His instruction, when they place themselves under the authority of His Word, and listen, and they believe that in being there, that in being there, they will find great reward. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word on these most difficult issues, but they're real questions we all have. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ in whatever situation they're in, that in looking into Your Word today, that it might pierce through the barriers they may feel, that it would pierce through the unbelief that may have held them captive, that it would pierce through maybe a nonchalant attitude, that they would receive it as Your Word to them. It's the place of power and miracles when we receive Your Word. And I pray, Lord, that we would think about Your greatness wanting to be offered to us if we would just hear You and then obey. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.